Well, good morning. All right, what a full Sunday, as we've already heard three testimonies of God's grace and seen the waters of baptism stirred, and now we pray that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts as we hear His Word expounded and taught. So if you would, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's the first gospel. And this morning we're going to find ourselves in verses 9 through 17. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we actually have some on the back row, uh, a Bible, or you can follow along as the words will be put on the screen. But I would encourage you to bring a Bible because we often are, are flipping to other passages other than the main one uh, that we're in uh, this morning. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Two weeks after Sarah and I had gotten married, we began our journey to seminary by traveling across country from Lexington, Kentucky to Los Angeles, California. Uh, it was quite the adventure. I'll have to tell you some of the stories. Um, but on our way over there, uh, neither of us had a job, and unbeknownst to us, neither of us had a place to live um, because the apartment that we had secured wasn't secure. <laughs> uh, and there's a story behind that as well. Nevertheless, the Lord is gracious, uh, and, and we were welcomed by a, a precious young couple who had a home next to the, the church and the seminary, and they too themselves were seminary students. Uh, but they led us into their home, but, which we thought was only going to be maybe for a couple of weeks. Well, it turned into over two months. Uh, we were living in suitcases for the first 
two and a half months of our marriage, something like that. So uh, the Lord uh, was still good to us, though. But uh, they, they not only gave us a place to stay, but they, they opened up their whole house to us, said, you know, anything in the pantry is yours, anything in the fridge. You know, we didn't take advantage of that, but that was a very nice gesture. But they really opened up their home and were just so merciful and gracious to us. I remember one night, though, Sarah and I were lying in bed, and, and, and I don't remember if she was crying. I'm the one who cries, by the way. But uh, uh, I, we were, were just weeping as we were reflecting on the kindness being showed to us. And, and I reflect on that time because on one level, we were so overwhelmed with gratitude. We, in a real sense, had nothing. And yet this family was bringing us in, letting us stay longer than we had originally expected. And, and, and there was a, a huge sense of gratitude. But on, on the other hand, uh, we were broken. We were filled with conviction because we had seen the kindness extended to us. And, and it was humbling because we had to ask the question, would we extend the same level of kindness? And for us, we were newly married, we're, we're traveling, we're trying to uh, get all these things done. We were, we were solely fixed on ourselves. And yet here was a couple not far removed in life than us, but yet they were showing great kindness and mercy. Their mercy and kindness was used by God to grant us repentance and cause us to draw closer to him. And, and that shouldn't be any surprise to any of us because, as the scriptures tell us, for the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Well, here in our passage this morning, we, this isn't exactly the same scenario, but we, we do see that the hallmark uh, kind of feature of the kingdom, or blessedness in the kingdom, if you will, is we're going to see is marked by mercy. That mercy characterizes Christ's kingdom, compassion and grace, particularly grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. God's grace abounds. And for us who have experienced God's mercy in Christ, we too, we're to extend that mercy and that grace to, to others trapped in sin and rebellion toward God. However, there is a danger for each of us. There's a danger that you and I are all susceptible to, especially if we've been Christians for any amount of time. And it is the danger of becoming disconnected from sinners. It's the danger of being so separated from the lost and showing mercy to them because, not because we're doing bad things, but because we've prioritized our religious duty over merciful practice. In our passage, Jesus gives us two commands. You see the first one in verse 9 where Jesus calls Matthew and he says, follow me. But there's another command in verse 13 where Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn. And if we were to put both of these commands together, we, we would see that following Jesus involves befriending sinners so that we may extend the mercy of God's salvation to them. That's what he wants us to go and learn. You're going to learn from following me. And as we extend that mercy that we have received to, to sinners, what's the result? Will they begin to taste the kindness of the Lord that they too may come to repentance? But as you can imagine, Jesus' 
practice of befriending sinners was not popular amongst every uh, crowd, if you will, and and particularly the, the religious pious. First, Jesus is criticized for fellowshipping with the wrong people. You're hanging out with the wrong people, Jesus. But also Jesus is criticized by others because he's feasting instead of fasting. And so Jesus is criticized on on multiple fronts. But what do these criticisms represent? What do they expose in the hearts of those who are offering them? What we're going to see this morning is that their criticism was the fact that Jesus wasn't practicing his piety the way that they do. And in particular, that they had had such a, a religious duty that they have prioritized that it actually squelched out all mercy. And they have to learn what God's requirement of us really is. So what Jesus wants us to learn this morning is that his kingdom is more concerned with mercy than sacrifice. That's what he tells us to go and learn. In other words, you and I, we must beware of allowing our expressions of piety. What do I mean by that? Our religious duty, our pursuit of the spiritual disciplines, good things. We must beware of pursuing them to such an extent that they actually trump us showing mercy to anybody because we're so self-absorbed with our following Jesus. Do you get that? We're following God, but we have no time for people. There can be a danger here by which these things take precedent over showing mercy toward the lost. Because if our pursuit of righteousness, brothers and sisters... Our pursuit of holiness and godliness and worship and everything that we do here on a Sunday morning, if those things do not cultivate within us merciful hearts toward sinners, we're not doing what we think we're doing. We're not worshiping. We're not pursuing godliness. We're not truly pursuing holiness if if the result is not mercy toward sinners. So this morning, I want us to consider, how, how do we guard ourselves from that? Because I would, I'd venture to guess all of us are like, yes, I, I battle there. I struggle. And I want you to know I'm of no exception. How do we guard ourselves from being disillusioned into thinking we're growing in righteousness while we're not growing in mercy? How, how do we guard ourselves from being under that delusion? Because true kingdom righteousness, as we see in the life of Jesus, is expressed by showing mercy to those who are far from God. True kingdom righteousness is expressed by showing mercy to those who are far from God. So consequently then, we too must learn what Jesus means when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I would put forth that in our passage, mercy is multiplied. It it comes. It's the avenues by which mercy come are through five realities, if you will, or five ways. First, mission. Mercy comes through mission. Mercy comes through humility. Mercy comes through friendship. Mercy comes through joy. And finally, mercy comes through freedom. And I think that's what we see. We're, 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 we're struck with this. What does it mean? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, we just have to look at Jesus and what he does and what he says. And we will learn what that means. 
And those are the areas that we see exemplified in this passage. And so, first of all, if we want to cultivate merciful hearts, if, if you're there, I want to cultivate a merciful heart for sinners more than I have right now. Well, first of all, we must not forget the mission. We must not forget the mission. As Jesus is being criticized for befriending sinners, such as Matthew and his companions, we learn that mercy is Jesus' mission. His mission is dispense mercy upon people. In fact, this is exactly what we see at the beginning of the gospel, which I was reflecting upon and realizing this was a year ago when we were at the beginning of the gospel, but nevertheless, we were there. And this is what the angels told Joseph about the child that his betrothed wife Mary would bear. The angel said, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's Matthew 1.21. That is why Jesus is coming into the world, to save sinners, to bring them the mercy of God's salvation. This is why Jesus has come, and as we see in our passage, this is what the Pharisees and the religious elite did not understand about Jesus. They were wondering, why would this man who calls himself a man of God, a teacher of the things of God, why would he hang out with sinners such as these? It just baffled their minds. Why would he hang out with tax collectors? might be wondering, what's the big deal about tax collectors? Well, tax collectors were, were Jews who had essentially sold out their nation and their people to align themselves with the Roman government. And they had, uh, um, in essence, begun to be exactly what the name is, tax collectors. And you see in verse 9, this is what Matthew was. He was sitting at the tax booth, and, and this booth would be set outside of town as people would be coming from the bordering towns, and they had traded goods, if you will. And when they're coming in with their new goods, Matthew would be there to collect their duty or their tax. But what made matters worse was not only were tax collectors, in a sense, betraying their country by aligning themselves with the Roman government and taxing their own people, but tax collectors were notorious for requiring more than the tax actually was so they could line their own pockets. And so not only were they liars and thieves, but they had betrayed their own people, and worst of all, they had turned their back on the God of Israel. They turned their back on him. They loved money and power more than the Lord their God. And so often when you see in the Gospels, tax collectors is paired also with another phrase, and sinners, because they were on par with the most morally suspect individuals you could think of, in particular, prostitutes. That was another name for them. They were moral misfits, if you will. Everybody's saying, well, who would categorize as tax collectors and sinners today? And although I think we could think of many, but I think one that, that would probably most align us would be um, groups such as the LBGTQ community. Jesus, why are you hanging out with them and having a good time? That would be the equivalent. Why are you over at their house? Why are you enjoying a meal with those people? Do you know what they do? Do you know who they are? 
This was what it had been like in that day. Why would Jesus associate with people like these? Why would he risk his reputation, you might ask? Does he not care about holiness? That would have been probably brought up. Does he not care? God's holy and we shall be holy. Separate from them. Does he not know that bad company corrupts good morals? As Jesus overhears the Pharisees speaking things like this to his disciples, Jesus replies and he shares his mission. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And one statement explains it all. I've come for sinners, not the righteous. And this call that he, that he, that he mentions is an invitation to, to come into the kingdom. It's an invitation to be reconciled with God. A people who thought, no, no, we've been estranged. We're outcasts. The, the community, the religious community has made it clear there is no hope for us. And so we hang out together. And Jesus comes and says, I have an invitation for you. All your sins may be forgiven. Come follow me. This is what John Calvin writes on this text, talking about the mission of of Christ. He came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanliness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe with his glory those who were covered with shame, to renew to a blessed immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. Jesus' mission is to rescue sinners, brothers and sisters. That's his mission. And if we forget the mission, if we don't see that as I'm following Jesus who has given us this mission at the end of the gospel, if we forget that, well then we'll stop extending mercy to the morally suspect. We'll be content with pursuing Jesus in the way we have defined it. And where I'm never pushed to be merciful. Jesus shows us that the mission demands mercy. I mean, just built up, the mission is mercy. That's why we call uh, outreach mercy ministries, if you ever thought about that. But in his instruction to the Pharisees, he also exposes another area that we're susceptible to, that keeps us from extending mercy, and that is he exposes pride in them. Pride that keeps people from showing mercy. Really, the reason we struggle is because we think higher of ourselves than we ought. We lack humility concerning particularly our own need, our own sinfulness, and we forget it. And so humility, mercy comes through humility. Look at in verse 12, Jesus not only told them that he has come to call the righteous but sinners, but before that, he says this to, to the religious leaders. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I mean, we get this. You don't go to the doctor because you're well, right? You go to the doctor because you're sick. And Jesus says, I'm the physician. I've come to heal the sick. I've come to heal those who are lost and dying in their sins. 
And if we forget our need for Jesus, our hearts will grow cold to those we think we're more holy than, right? It's easy to look at people trapped in their sins and say, I don't do that. I'm good. I can't believe you would do those awful things. And we can go through it all and all, and we can easily forget who we were and, brothers and sisters, who we are apart from Christ. We can forget those things. It'll cause our hearts to grow cold and become merciless to individuals. Yes, after coming to Christ, we repent. Jesus doesn't give any inclination that he isn't calling to repentance. We see this in, in Matthew, leaving his tax booth and following Jesus, yes. But our repentance, brothers and sisters, where all of us have turned from sin, turned from darkness to follow Christ, why did we turn? Because of the grace of God in our life. There go I apart from the grace of God. That's how we should always respond when we see sin rampant in the life of others. There go I. What do you have, brothers and sisters, that you have not received? Truth is nothing. And how scary it would be to be in the position that you no longer grieve your own sins. That's the Pharisees here. They no longer grieve their own sins. And I love what Martin Luther says about this text. He says, Beware of ever desiring such purity that you do not want to seem to yourself to be a sinner. For Christ dwells only in sinners. Do you understand what he's saying? If your pursuit of holiness and righteousness is actually a pursuit of forgetting your sinfulness, well, then you're not, you're not pursuing Christ. Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 6 when he says, go and learn, verse 13. If you want, you can turn there. Hosea 6. Maybe you have your Bibles marked. It's right after Daniel, if you can find Daniel, in Old Testament. But in Hosea 6, 6, this is what Jesus is referring to, where, where the Lord says through the prophet Hosea, I desire steadfast love or, or mercy and not sacrifice. But there's a parallel statement after that. It says it's saying the same thing, just with different words. I hear some of your Bible's still turning, so I'm trying to slow down. The Lord says to the prophet Hosea, to Israel, who, who, by the way, has the external form of righteousness, but they're thieves, they're murderers. They abuse and take advantage of people. And the Lord says to them, I desire steadfast love. That's God's saving love. That's his mercy. And not sacrifice. And then look at the parallel statement. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What are we seeing here? What's the parallel between steadfast love slash mercy and the knowledge of God? The true knowledge of God will produce the mercy of God in us. Because when we truly know God, we'll see ourselves rightly in our need for his saving grace. 
So what is this passage saying? If, if mercy isn't growing, that doesn't mean that we are perfect. We're, that's the whole thing. We're, we realize how sinful we are. But if we're not growing in mercy, well, then we're not growing in our knowledge of God. Why? Because God's merciful. God's gracious towards sinners like you and me. And so we can claim we're growing in our knowledge and all our Bible studies that we attend during the week and, and, and all the stuff that we do in the worship and, and all these things. But if it is not producing in us a heart of compassion toward the lost, then, then we've missed the point. We've missed the point of the passage. We've missed the gospel. We've missed Christ. That's where Israel was. And so as we pursue a true knowledge of God, we'll actually see ourselves and who we truly are in light of His holiness. And the knowledge of God will reveal our hypocrisies, our lusts for praise, our begrudging of others, our selfish ambitions, our immoral desires, our greedy eyes. I was reading in Psalm 90, verse 8, and listen to what the psalmist says. Lord, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. What's he saying? When you come into the presence of the true and living God, all your sins are exposed. And so there's a real sense, if you are pursuing the knowledge of God, you will see yourself as a wretched sinner. But in light of that great depth of your sin, you'll see the great mercy of God toward you that you had no idea about. Your sin's worse than you think, but God's grace is greater than you think. Because where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, amen? And so when we understand the depths of our own sin and rebellion, our own corruption and our own hearts and how Christ alone, only in him have we found mercy and grace and compassion. Well, goodness. You can just see the natural connection. We can't help but extend mercy to others. To show compassion for them. To feel grieve for them. And it's this type of humility and recognition of our own wretchedness that will actually cause us to have compassion upon others who are trapped in their sins and then will be in a place to actually do what Jesus did and establish friendships with sinners. Look in verses 9 through 10. We see mercy comes through friendship. Go back to Matthew if you're still stuck in Hosea. But we see Jesus calls Matthew, who's sitting in the tax booth, and then shortly thereafter, where does he go? He goes to his house, and he reclines at his table, so he befriends this one. But what we see here is that Matthew brings all his friends. Many, the text says, many tax collectors and sinners came. Now just pause for a moment and think about this. How comfortable must Matthew have felt with Jesus? How comfortable. He knew who he was. He knew the crowd that he was running in. I was just, I got an email from a, a ministry, a guy who used to lead one, and unfortunately he, he got addicted to pain meds and, uh, and had to go into rehab. And, and his, his, he's been sharing his testimony in a sense, but this week it's, why I rather go to AA than to church? 
And he wouldn't say he doesn't go to church, but why does he rather go there? Because there's grace. There's grace. And as I could not help but think, why did they come to Jesus? Not only did Matthew, but he says, come guys, Jesus is at my house. And they all wanted to. Why? Because there's grace. Made me just think, if if people heard of us, said, hey, would you want to go hang out with them? Would they say, oh yeah, they're gracious. The mercy of God is multiplied when we befriend those in need of mercy. It's multiplied in us, and it's multiplied to them. Let me explain what I mean. When we befriend sinners, and you just, it's a broad category, those far from God, and to whatever extent that may be, when we befriend them, mercy, first of all, grows in us as we see the image of God in them. What do I mean by that? It's a lot easier to write someone off you don't know, right? When a friend of yours falls into sin or a family member of yours falls into sin, you're likely to be more gracious with them than the the person you don't know who did the same thing, right? Why? Because they're human to you. They're not just a name, a face on the TV screen or on, on, on the social media post. You have a relationship with them. And because of that relationship with them, you begin to see them as genuine people. Genuine human beings. And, and, and mercy begins to grow in us because you care for them. And how does it grow? It grows as you see their hurts. It grows as you see the pain in their eyes or, or when you, you see just the wear of life on their skin and their demeanor. As you begin to listen to them talk and you can hear their brokenness, their longings for love, sometimes you, you hear their misconceptions of God because of who they've come in encounter with. You hear their their mistreatment by others, and you, you begin to see why maybe they're depressed or why they're angry. You begin to understand. It's not excusing the sin, but you begin to have a context for it that you realize that, you know what, you're not that far off from them. You're not much different yourself. This is how mercy's multiplied in us, but but it's also multiplied toward them when that occurs in us because as we listen and show compassion and care for them, they begin to taste and see that the Lord is good through you, through me. This is what one Bible teacher said, and this is so good. God is gracious before demanding. Did you hear that? God is gracious before demanding. And I think so often we demand before we'll be gracious, right? They better not do this, then I'll have time for them. But God's not that way. Christ died for us when? When we were sinners. 
when we were in hostility toward him, he demonstrated his love for us. It's how we've come to know him, but sometimes so often we flip it and say, no, you, we demand first sacrifice, then mercy. So as you think about this, how might you begin to befriend sinners in your life? I understand many of us aren't good at this, right? Maybe you're like, I struggle with making friends, period. <laughs> how might I do this? There's much that could be said. Whole books have been written on it. Good books, in fact. And I know it's hard. But here's some things that I think can be helpful just thinking broadly. Those of you who work in the workplace, who is it in your workplace who's the loneliest, the least likable for whatever reason? The one who has no friends. Have you ever thought about, whether it's in the break room or at some point, say, hey, could we get lunch? Maybe, maybe you have the means, you could buy their lunch. Doesn't have to be, just, hey, I want to get lunch with you. And just begin to ask them about their life. Get to know them. If you're like, I don't even know where to begin. You can Google how to make friends and questions to ask, and you can write them down. I'm serious. That's what I did when I was dating my wife. It's like, all right, I'm going to make this phone call. I don't need any awkward pauses where I don't know what to do and I say something stupid. So I'm writing out kind of bailout questions. Do that? Students, the same thing. Even if you're in middle school or elementary, all the way up, who's the kid sitting by themselves at lunch? Who's the kid who's constantly made fun of? Who's the kid who, who seems the most discouraged? You can go befriend them by merely saying, could I have lunch with you today? That's what Jesus is doing. Or just in our neighborhoods. And I know we're so busy. Pastor Jim and I were talking just the other day, just thinking about how busy our culture is. And, and this is, includes all of us. Our kids are involved in so many things. We limit our kids to one thing, but I got five of them. So that means five things. We're always going, 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 and so is all the people around us. And yet it is very difficult to befriend people. But what if you put on your calendar, hey, this month, let's, 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 let's try to have one of our neighbors over. Those people that we've been meaning to meet for the last seven years. We talk when we're taking out the trash. Why don't we just ask them, come over for dinner. Have your list of questions. Memorize them, because that would be kind of weird if you had it out right there. <laughs> and listen. Just listen. And you know what? Eventually, the questions will come to you. And you'll have opportunity to tell them about the hope you have in Christ. So as you befriend and extend mercy to, to these, you'll find opportunity will come along to speak of Christ in a natural way. And through their encounter with you, they'll get a taste of heaven's joy. And that's, that's the next point. Mercy comes through joy. Now, this is the second group that criticizes Jesus. This is, um, he now starts to get criticized by the disciples of John the Baptist. These aren't even the bad guys. These are, these are good guys. They just don't understand everything yet. And whereas the Pharisees had a problem with who Jesus was hanging out with, 
The main problem for these guys is that Jesus is feasting instead of fasting. Jesus, don't you know, godly people don't have fun. That's, that's kind of the, the essence here. Did you not know we're not supposed to enjoy things? Why? We're all here suffering for the Lord, and you went over and you are feasting at a tax collector's house. That's, that's the kind of reaction they may have had. And here's some irony. If you've been with us over, over our study through Matthew, the reality is Jesus has fasted. He fasted for 40 days, matter of fact, in chapter 4. And he taught on fasting in chapter 6, but here's what they must have not have realized. Not so that you may be seen. This is one of the susceptible things that we as Christians can fall into. Oh, because they aren't doing things the way I think they should. They must not be really loving Jesus. They, may not, they must not fast like I fast. They must not go to, they must not study their Bible because if they're doing those things, how, must they, how would they have time for such godly activities? They must just be this morally bankrupt person. But notice Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't say, actually, guys, I, I do fast. I'm just trying to win some people for, for the kingdom. Get off my back. He doesn't say that. He doesn't defend himself, but rather he gives a parable. A parable to teach them about the significance of who he is. And he, he says in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he brings to their attention a wedding. He says that when you go to a wedding, you don't fast. You feast. You enjoy the, the occasion fits celebration and joy, not mourning and fasting. What's he getting at here? Well, well, for those who have ears, they understand that with the coming of Messiah and the kingdom is the kingdom is marked by joy and it is characterized as a great wedding feast. That's actually what we're looking forward to as believers, the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. My presence is full of joy. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't say be happy all the time, there's no time to ever mourn. He, he acknowledges for them there's going to be a time and actually we're in that time. But we who have the Holy Spirit, there's the powers of the kingdom have already come. And what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Joy. And I think sometimes we create these religious rules that somehow it's wrong if I actually had a good time today. Yes, the Bible talks about denying yourself, taking up your cross, living in modesty and not in influence. But, but yet it also has this understanding that we can live in joy. We can give, good thing, give thanks to the good things that we enjoy in this world. This leads us to our final, well, let, before I do that. When we're befriending people, we want them to see the joy of the Lord, right? So they may taste. We invite them to share in the good things of this world and actually help correct misconceptions about us. Oh, they, they actually can enjoy the world. That doesn't mean go live in sinful lifestyle. They can enjoy food. They can enjoy a gathering. They can enjoy the lake. They can enjoy these things. 
And we can say, actually, did you know how, how good this is? Well, when the kingdom comes, there's, there's, it's all joy because there's no curse. We actually know this is, this is the best things of this world are just glimpses, just tastes of heaven. <laughs> you think this is good. It's going to be much better if you follow Jesus. And our hope is not now. Our hope is in the resurrection and the age to come. What in the world are you talking about? Well, we got a lot to talk about. Let me, tell you, let me take you to the Word, or let me take you to someone who does know the Word. That's what Matthew did. Hey, guys, you need to come with me to my house. I've got somebody you want to meet. And maybe just like the, the friends of the paralytic in our passage last week, maybe we have to literally carry people there, but we want to bring them to, the, to Jesus. We want to, we want to bring them to where the Word is spoken and where life can be given. What you see here, and this is our last point, is that following Jesus is, is marked by, there's great freedom. There's great freedom. Following Jesus is not characterized by bondage. And so joy and freedom are closely related. And this is why he goes right into to another parable. Actually two, but they're communicating the same idea. He says, Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine poured into old wineskins. Uh, if, if it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What in the world is Jesus talking about, right? Well, the analogies are, are, are pretty simple. You got shrunken jeans. They didn't have jeans, but just imagine for us. And you put an unshrunken cloth on it. When you take it to the wash again, the rest of those jeans had already shrunk, but that cloth is going to shrink more, and it rips a bigger hole. You can't put a new unshrunken cloth on old garments. Or wine. Jesus actually drank wine. Did you know that? Um, wine. When it ferments, the, the leather skin, that the, the fermentation happened would, would get dry and hard once it's expanded and, and, and gone through the whole fermentation process. Well, he says you can't take an old wine skin and put new wine to do that process again because eventually it'll just burst and everything will be destroyed. And so new wine must be put into new wine skins. And there's a wealth of theological meaning to all this. But in its basic sense, the coming kingdom... And the reign of Christ cannot be contained by the old ways of the law in Judaism. Uh, it cannot be contained by this present evil age. He's bringing in a new creation. And that creation's already begun in each one of you as we have received the Holy Spirit. And so all the laws about separation, uncleanliness, they can't handle Jesus. That's why they're just, he's blowing their mind every time he's healing people. He's healing on the Sabbath. Why? Oh, you think it's just about not doing stuff. The Sabbath is about bringing the rest of the Father, the rest of the kingdom. It's here in me. But they're so concerned about the rule. He's come to fulfill the law and bring about the reality to which all these things were pointing. And so in this way, it's not the external righteousness, Jesus is saying, that makes you clean. Oh, and, and here's what would happen. The Pharisees fasted on like Monday and Wednesday. Well, John the Baptist's disciples fasted on Tuesday and Thursday. 
I guess it was a Thursday when Jesus went over to, uh, to Matthew's house. But he's saying, goodness, guys, it doesn't matter when you do that. You're so consumed about external expressions of it. I've come to fulfill the law. And everyone who loves God and loves neighbor fulfills the law. Principles, it drives us nuts, right? Because I just want to be told what to do and what I can't do. And Jesus says, this is what Augustine says, I love this. Love God and do what you want. And some of you are really uncomfortable with that. But if you love God, it's just what the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He understood what that meant. If I'm truly consumed with the love of God, I can do whatever I want because I'm going to walk in his will. We can talk about that in community group if you need to. So, Jesus is blowing our minds, right? This is the law of Christ. Now, we're going to close. We had baptism and stuff, so good thing. We're going to go just two minutes over, all right? I want you to see Paul applying this, because this is what he does. Uh, just go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So keep going right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this is the freedom. Now, here's how we usually think of freedom. I'm going to get some in while you're turning there. We think, so I can do what I want. I can, I can kind of live like the world, and Jesus covered it. That's not the freedom that he's talking about. That's bondage, actually. Freedom, as we're going to see, is actually I'm free now to serve others. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. You know this from passage if you've grown up in church. For though I am free from all, you see that? I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So he gives examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. What does that mean? He'll tell us. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself. Do you see that? I'm free to put myself under the law to win people to Christ, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But notice the qualification that not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love God and neighbor. I became as one outside the law, meaning I can eat whatever I want. And I can do it on Saturday, which was the problem then. Or I could have my Chick-fil-A on Sunday. That's... <laughs> Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its what? Blessings. That's the joy. Paul's just applying this. And so, brothers and sisters, what do we see? We extend mercy through the mission. That's the mission. Through humility, friendship, joy, and freedom. That's what we've been called to. 
and in doing so, we'll truly be following Jesus. Let's pray.